and a welcome to Ben the Knee, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. I am Sir Matt, the Bud Knight. And I am Sir Jimmy of House Nuts, and welcome to our Song of Ice and Fire book club. Today, we are into a Storm of Swords, John 1. Yeah, absolutely. Jimmy, you know, it feels good again. You know, we've been the broken these past couple of weeks, okay? And I'm still got like a weird setup going here. I might, you know, have to stand up for a second. I don't know, but uh, feels good to kind of be back. I've been, po- I was able to, you know, get some content back up on the youtube posted to short mm-hmm. got some other stuff going um feels good we've been getting a lot more ravens so it's gonna be nice we'll maybe do a dive into that we were talking today about maybe doing like a tier ranking uh yes. you know uh, uh, uh some tier rankings of like who's the best character right who's who's the best like portrayal so we want to do some of those things too so but today we're into john one which is a really big chapter uh and this is going to this is that new sort of, you know, as we've been going with these other characters, the new settings, right? Yeah. The big, the big shift. Ari on her own after dealing with Jack and Hagar. Sansa is now learning to play that Game of Thrones a little bit more. And now John and his newfound love of wildlings really sort of uh, starts here in today in today's chapter. Yeah, definitely. And seeing all the camps and and really realizing how many wildlings there are is pretty incredible. And uh, we get a lot of distinct characters beyond the wall, and it is a good time. I, I really enjoyed reading through this chapter this week. Yeah, and some big things too that tie into the back into the early series, right? Because this is where we meet Mance Raider. So, yeah. With that, let's dive in. So the summary is: John is brought before Mance Raider since Rattleshirt doesn't trust him. In the King's Tent, John mistakes Steer for Mance Raider, but it is the gray-haired man playing the lute who is the king beyond the wall. Rattleshirt reveals his misgivings about John to the king, but Mance wishes to speak with John alone. Mance indicates that he's seen John twice before. Once while he was still a black brother and John just as a boy. And again, during King Robert's visit to Winterfell, Mance had disguised himself as a singer in order to see King Robert and get the measure of Benjamin Stark, who was a bane to the wildlings. Testing John, he asks why he deserted the Night's Watch, but John asks him to tell his story first. The king explains that he had been wounded in a hunt and treated by an old wildling woman. She mended his cloak with burgundy fabric, which was rare for wildlings to have and hence very valuable to part with. When Mance returned to the watch, they replaced his cloak with a new black one, emphasizing the importance of the black uniform and not recognizing the symbolism of her gift. Mance came to resent the restriction to the new black cloak of the Night's Watch. John, knowing now Mance was at Winterfell, asks, and did you see where I was seated, Mance? Did you see where they put the bastard? The king then accepts John as a member of the Free Folk. What a banger of a closing line for a chapter by the way did you see where they put the bastard i was like man this so so i do think kid harrington does a very nice job in the show i know he gets a lot of flack especially for the later seasons i think some of that was writing based but this is where when i read this it feels a bit different feels just a little bit different i i I think i maybe i believe this coming from the uh, book character a little more, which is crazy because I'm seeing his inner dialogue where he's like, I just got to pretend. I just got to pretend and get out and go be with my brothers back at the watch. But yeah, man, just a great line. And John seems to be able to play the game pretty well. Yeah. And I will, uh, you know, agree with you too. You know, this is where we talked about, you know, show versus book or whatever. Mance Raider is that one character in the show. I, the guy who played him, I think was great. And I wish that he would have been given a bigger role 
and like roll closer to what we got in the books. Not that his acting was mm-hmm. bad by any stretch of the means, yeah. but it's just sort of like the, the the path they chose that character in the show to walk. Yeah, uh, I wish they would have gone in a totally different direction because Mance is one of those characters, at least for me, the show versus the books, where I think it's one of the worst adaptations of show to book of a character i mean it's well if you look at this chapter there's a couple of them because even though we love tormund he's different in the book i mean very very different (laughs) yeah very different i still like tormund in the show um yeah i yeah i love the direction but yeah if you were saying as far as accuracy goes they definitely cut it out but like mance is almost for me is like one of the worst just because there's so much more to the character in the books i just completely you know, yeah. just disregard it. I mean, you know, there's obviously other characters, Stoneheart and Young Griff. They don't even bring in, but to have that character, man, it's just that's a huge missed opportunity by the show. Yeah, and the baby swap, which we'll get to it at some point in Feast and Dance, and then also whenever he goes back to Winterfell, right, to to, to get um, Arya Stark and and do all that. You know, th- th- there's a lot of stuff for Mance to do in the books, and he he's a big player. Um, by the way, the person who played Mance, I don't know the actor's name, but he just got cast in Rings of Power. In Rings of He's, Power. I yeah, saw that. Same thing. Yeah, I don't know his name, but I saw just some pictures. Yeah, I mean, they can uh, use all the help they can get. So that's that's great. Of, yeah, of that as well. <laughs> so, you know, the... Yes, they can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, some uh, some interesting things here. Because last week, George introduced a song, Right. In that Sansa chapter, mm. and they did that again here. They did that sort of again here, but it's in a way almost like the kind of flip, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, it was the songs being sung, and Sansa is the one. She is the maiden fair being lured to the bear that will be Willis Tyrell. The other way here, it's the Dornishman's wife, right? Yes. Which one is very interesting, you know. How is how does Mance Raider know this song? This is where a lot of theories come in about Mance Raider perhaps being someone else with the two most common theories being perhaps Arthur Dane or Rhaegar Targaryen. You know, so the song that goes on, you know, the Dornishman's wife was fair as the sun and her kisses were warmer than spring. But the Dornishman's blade was made of black steel and its kiss was a terrible thing, which again could be foreshadowing to even other things down the line. Right. Black steel. You know, John knew the song, though it was strange to hear it here in a shaggy hide tent beyond the wall, 10,000 leagues from the red mountains and warm winds of Dorn. The song continues on. The Dornishman's wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach. But the Dornishman's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. Uh, the song continues, right? As he lay on the ground with the darkness around and the taste of blood on his tongue, his brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer, and he smiled and laughed as he sung. Brothers, oh brothers, my day here are done. The Dornishman's taken my life, but what does it matter for all men must die, and I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Yowzers! So, you know, in a way, this is one of those things where when you do this as a reread, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people and a lot of like other YouTubers and stuff like that, when we do theories, we often just sort of go to that chapter or we look at, say, John chapters. You say, OK, well, you just sort of looking at and you, ju- you just sort of view these theories and things through the scope of like one POV character. 
as opposed to perhaps viewing it through the scope of like surrounding characters. Mm -hmm. So last week we had the Sansa chapter. As I said earlier, the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. It's actually about really it's about Sansa, right? Being led to that to that bear. Yeah. Here you could view. And I think a lot of people do as Mance. You know, how does Mance know the song, especially because John indicates it. But on the other way around, it's kind of like John is actually the one who's doing the dece the deception here because he knows that he's in this camp and he's, you know, he's about to taste the Dornishman's wife with regret. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he's the one who's doing some of the deceiving and deception mm. here. Yeah, definitely. And it, it also helps that, you know, Dorn and uh, Beyond the Wall are polar opposites. So it, it's kind of easy to flip it around and then put John in this position. I think one of the things that is kind of uh, that we take in from John's perspective is that he's so shocked that Mance would know this. But we have to remember also that John doesn't know Jack Diddley about the Wildlings in this circumstance. He is learning right. all kinds of things. He's seeing all the amount of people who are here, how they're interacting with one another, how they're you know, some wife and kids like playing around. It's not all war, even though they're stacking up arrowheads and things like this. So I think part of it being shocking that Mance would know this song comes from the idea that we are behind John's eyes and he is just very naive when it comes to the wildlings. And let's be honest, most people beyond, you know, down below the wall are. They think wildlings are like, you know, some just monstrous people that uh, can't get along. But might be half true I mean, <laughs> you know rattle shirt's not exactly the most friendly guy in the world but they're certainly uh a lot more organized and civilized than i think people give them credit for below the wall so um yeah yeah this song is also just really good to be honest with you like i love george's songs most of the time i read a lot of fantasy books and when songs are listed usually it's like oh i'm gonna skip all of this uh i always read george's songs they're so good they are all of it, all of the all of the songs actually are good and they're all really important. That's why, you know, as much as, you know, season eight was bad. One of the things that did it, it did give us in terms of at least like big a song of ice and fire stuff was it finished Jenny's song, mm. which, you know, we'd only had those few lines of. And that's, you know, big theory that ties into a lot of theories and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of which theory? that by the way? And the, I, I will give that credit. That scene in the show was pretty sick. Banger. It's so good. I watch it. I mean, and then the and then they did it again at the end. It had like Florence and the Machine do it. You know. So. Yeah. Oh, and that that is a uh, that's that's on my daily playlist for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so sweet. And now the Dornishman's wife. Have you ever heard of the theory that this is from the perspective of a White Walker? Ooh, no. But so I check, can, check, I check. Probably out. see it. Check this out. So Dornishman's wife is fair as the sun. Her kisses were warmer than spring. In this, in, in this theory, it says that kisses are actually blows. So she's trying to fight back against this White Walker, and he almost sees it as adorable and beautiful. You know, it's like her kisses, but it's really blows, right? right. The Dornishman's blade was made of black steel, which is obsidian dragon glass, which we know that can kill a White Correct. Walker. So the Dornish wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach, but the Dornishman's blade had a song of its own, a, bar a bite sharp and cold as a leech. Um, cold is being referenced here. Obviously the blade is, is like the bane of his existence. Um, as he lay on the ground, uh, a darkness around the taste of blood on his tongue. So this is a point where people theorize that the white walker is actually eating the Dornish man's wife. This is not a sexual tale. This is homicide. 
from right. a white walker. His brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer and he smiled and he laughed and he sung. Um, and then he goes on to say that he, the Dornish man's taken my life, but I have tasted the Dornish man's wife. And the theory is, is that when they say taste, it means literally that he was eating it. Um, alive and we've we and you have been talking for some episodes now about how we feel like the white walkers have a lot more culture we see that in the prologue of game of thrones they have their own language so the idea of other white walkers being around them and and chanting and singing actually i think tracks a little bit um and also you know dornish man's wife maybe dawn you know right I don't know. It's a loose theory, but I saw it today uh, when I was doing some research for this chapter and I thought it'd be worth mentioning here on the podcast because it's a fun one. This is probably one of those songs where I think it's, it is more about it being ironic that John is not in dorm, but at the Apollo opposite and is being deceitful. Right. Like, I think that that that's probably um, more apt <laughs> makes more sense. I mean, well, I mean, what do cool I mean? What do we, what do we think about the idea that Mance knows it now it's for context, you know, Mance Raider, is like craster and i still am on that idea that those they could be brothers in theory uh you know like both of both of them are have mothers of mothers that are wildlings and a father of the night's watch Mm -hmm. um so in theory it could it could work maybe they have different moms you know whatever um, but that's besides the point but just wanted to throw back in there because it's a new theory that i've uh also like last time you know, Tormund's like, we ought to lopped off Craster's head, which, by the way, I love that George didn't just do that. Like, he actually, right. he's like, this is what I could have done, but, like, I'm going to have Tormund ruin it, which I thought was kind of right. funny. But, like, Tormund wants to cut off this dude's head. The Night's Watch hate him. Why is Craster having this hand? Like, we've talked about the secrets of Craster giving over his kids, right, to the Whites. What is going on? Why is he so protected? I know. It's, it's crazy. It's wild. There's something it's- more there. There's definitely something more there because it's like, what, how do the, you know, it, cause again, it talks about what we've talked about, which is the wild, the white walkers, you know, in the show, they do come across as like zombies without maybe this level of intelligence, what we've talked about their intelligence in the books because they seem way smarter. Yeah. Uh, um, so, okay. Back to the Dornishman wife song how i mean so mance again then mance becomes a brother and we know that he so as we don't really know too much about his time as a brother so in theory he could have traveled the seven kingdoms yes right to help recruit which would explain his knowledge of this song and we know he at least goes to winterfell Mm -hmm. to go see king robert how do they know that king robert was coming down that's so this is interesting. So um, d- before we dive into this p- point, I do want to say he also could have learned the song because a lot of people from Westeros go to the wall. So someone could have came to knew the song like that would also right. make sense. Right. Because uh, they got shit to do at the wall. They're just <laughs> drinking mead and singing. Right. So it might make sense. Um, so he's been to Winterfell twice. He saw John and Rob back in the day. And he talks about seeing John as a little boy, but he does talk about Robert. And he says that Ned told Benjamin. And that somehow through the grapevine that Benjen or not Benjen told him, but because Benjen knew and he told people that someone had passed him this news. So there is a mole at Castle Black. There is a mole at the wall. But here's my question, Matt. Do you think that it's possible that Benjen Stark told Mance Raider? Oh, that's a good question. Because I feel like Benjamin. Because Mance is- does Mance does have respect for the Starks. That's right. Clearly, he, I mean, he yeah. 
I can see that. And then we don't know, you know, if Benjin Benjin would maybe be there. It seems like it seems that Mance is a little bit older than Benjin. It seems like, but it could also just be because he's. We don't really know his age. We don't know when he was born. Mm -hmm. Um, he's probably as old as Ned, or maybe he's a little bit older. I don't think even on the wiki, I'll check. I so, don't think we have it. I don't, yeah, yeah, we don't. We don't. We don't have any any um any general. Yeah, we just get a description of him and the fact that he is, you know, basically a bard almost. But yes, so this is the thing. It's like Benjamin Stark feels like one of those people who probably sees behind the fact that the wildlings are, you know, enemy. He probably obviously has killed wildlings and, and went on raids and whatnot. But the thing about it is, is like Benjamin's one of those characters, I think, that knows there's more out there. So, OK, so Mance. Okay, so Mance Raider would have gone to Mance Raider as part of the Night's Watch would have gone to the wall sometime between 286 and 288 to meet with Ned. And so he would have been there during this, uh, the same time as Benjen because Benjen goes to the wall after Rob Rebellion, I believe so. So regardless, I mean, they would probably have been at the wall at the same time. Yeah. Wow. So so my my theory coming out of this chapter was and I know he talked about Benjamin being a demon or, or a monster to his people and they know him well, but I got the feeling that like. Maybe Benjamin, you know, a named character <laughs> that that is concerned about things beyond the wall that aren't wildlings. Maybe is in you know working maybe not with but adjacent to the wildlings and talk to mance raider let's just see here robert's rebellion and i always forget what year is 286 right because mm -hmm. that's when john is born let me look i'm looking it up right now just to be sure 282 ad was robert's rebellion okay yeah okay so benjamin and mance definitely would have been yeah, they would, Benjamin and Mance definitely would have been at the wall together. So they would have been brothers of the Night's Watch together. And I'm not saying they're best friends, but I'm right. just saying it probably isn't unlikely right. that, that, that they have communicated. Right. So I think Benjamin told him that, that, Robert, that, that Robert was coming. Yeah, maybe he maybe be. he mentioned in passing, but like because Mance is out there recruiting people and all these things, getting ready to getting ready to to come south. Yes, but how would I guess? I guess my I guess the thing that's kind of interesting to think about is how would how would Benjamin not know all of these years what Craster's doing and perhaps not tell Mance because it seems like this is like their first time hearing about it. Well, I think that Mance kind of said, so he tells Tormund, like, damn you, I was trying to test the boy. And he kind of just said, I, I don't even know if he says anything negative about Craster. He kind of just goes over it. Like, he doesn't really say anything. So, hmm. so I don't know if we have an opinion from Mance. I shouldn't say an opinion, but more, more like content. I, I think Mance knows everything going on beyond, beyond the wall. So there, maybe there's a chance that Benjen and him know. And Mance is keeping it under wraps. I, I I don't know, and I don't want to go too out of left field, but I just feel like there's a lot going on here. Even though, I guess Mance said he just wanted to see the king. 
and Winterfell seems like kind of a loose reason for him to go beyond, like do of this big thing to life just and, to see the king climb, and climb the wall. Yeah. See, that's there's something there's got to be something more to it. Mm -hmm. There has to be because maybe. what the only other thing it would gain is if he perhaps maybe he thought knowing Benjen because Benjen could have said, Hey, I mean, if Benjen and Mance are in communication with each other, he could have told Benjen that, or Benjen could have told Mance before this whole thing happened that, hey, you know, the king's supposed to be coming because it's going to take the king, obviously, like, you know, like weeks. That's what he said. I here. beat him there. <laughs> you know, he's right. Like, yeah, it would take him weeks. And he thinks, you know, the only reason he's coming is to ask my brother to be handed the king, which would then remove Ned from Winterfell. So then this is maybe what gives Mance the idea of Ooh, destabilization. Well, the see, the interesting thing is um, in the first chapter, because Mance, again, is mentioned the first like in the first five chapters. Like he's important. Chapter, like he's big. We know that Mance Raider is moving around gathering people because that's like one of the first things Ned Stark says. It's like, mm -hmm. go read Bran 1. I mean, it's like one of the first lines in the whole book and the whole series. It matters. Is that he knows that. Yeah, because Ned says, I may have to go deal with that guy. I may have to ride beyond the wall to deal with man's raider. <laughs> and I think he says it again in that cap in the cat. I'll get it pulled up in the, in the Catlin chapter. But I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously, it's obviously a big deal. So I like that idea that perhaps Benjen could be friendly with Mance because, you know, just um, obviously Mormont is somewhat friendly with Craster. Yeah. And we're not saying that they're sitting down and like shooting dice. Uh, I, we're just saying that they communicate. That there's there's an agreement there of some sort of relay of information, right? Right. Maybe Benjen's asking Mance, "Have you found the horn yet? Have you found the horn?" Yeah, you know it's interesting that they that it's really interesting, I guess, that Mance and John don't ever really talk that much about Benjen and perhaps what happened to him. Like, hey, I was I came looking. They you know that's never yeah. really brought up. Not that not I not that I can recollect. We'll look for it now that when we go forward. But in this conversation, all he says is that Benjamin's been, you know, a terror for the, the wildlings. Yeah, which... I mean, I've read the I've read the series a bunch of times, and you know, I don't think I've ever. That's the thing about this is yeah. everything's so deep. It's like it, even though there's only five books, it's you have to really sort of think about yeah. like plot lines. Did that plot ever go that way? I don't think it did. Benjamin, nobody in fantasy means Benjamin. Uh, something else is going on there. And Mance is clearly super important to the series. And I just, I, I guess I just don't really, I mean, there could be a mole within Castle Black that is feeding Wildlings information, but like, who's it going to be? Small Paul? Like, it, there's no one that's named. So to me, there's it's like, really not that big of a reason to feed Wildlings information. No, they don't have what do you, I mean, with. the, the only thing women? you have, yeah, the only, the only thing you have is, is to, I mean, we see this as people like I'm going to go become a wildling because a lot of people it's like I'd I'd rather be a wildling than at Castle Black because at least as a wildling you can hook yeah. up and 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 and, and can... at the base of this like you found out that you know Benjen and Mance most likely were at the wall at the exact same time so like it would make sense a prior relationship possibly even though that he turned cloak all this stuff that Benjen would still have communication with Mance because who's I don't think Mance necessarily wants all the Night's Watch to die and everyone in Westeros to die. Well, like, that, even even Mance, goal. even Mance speaks highly in this chapter. He speaks. He still speaks highly of Corrin Halfhand. That's right. Yeah. Should was, I curse like, you, you would, or praise you? You killed my one, enemy. He was he was my brother once. That's right. Yeah. So M Mance is a 
and and just like all of our characters in this series, he's a lot more than what he was introduced as. He was introduced right. as the king of the wildlings that wants to come and rape and pillage, a barbarian right. almost. But he yeah. is not. The other thing is, I think you know sometimes we have to view it as like their enemies. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. But the Night's Watch is not this army that's just going to go beyond the wall and kill wildlings. The Night's Watch are like police. That's right. They're like almost like wardens of like a of a prison. It's like, you know, you, you know, but even beyond that, it's more. I think, you know, we think of the wildlings as like it's so it's so bizarre because really propaganda. It is. Well, it is because I talk about like the Dothraki. The wildlings are just they're no different than the Dothraki. They just live. It's they're. It's just because we still consider them as like part of the seven kingdoms, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, it's just, it's so well it's, in, in any night's watch member that's worth their salt and ranging tells you that there's more beyond the wall than just the wildlings. Right. And the wildlings are aware of that. There's whole camps of wildlings going missing that John's mentions in this chapter, which is why they went out ranging. Right. And also they were trying to get intel on man's writer clearly, but the, it, it, they have a common problem and that is, the white walkers, the whites, like there's clearly shit going on. Craster is the key to it all. Right. <laughs> Damn it. <George>. I know. <laughs> Damn you. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely think it is possible also to think about some of these people could be friendly with the, the, the night's watch. You know, it's, it, if you're a wildling, the night's watch beyond the wall, don't really pose you a big threat because again, they're not, the, like if the, the Night's Watch don't just go into hard home and start killing wildlings because we're warring with them. That's right. It's kind of it's kind of the other way around. It's like if you're a Night's Watch member, if you run into wildlings, it's likely they want to kill you because they view you as an oppressor. Hmm. So yeah. it is. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. We'll have to keep an eye out for the idea that perhaps Mance does know something about Benjen. I mean, then just Val. <laughs> we meet Val this chapter, dude. Right. Like this, this chapter is crazy good. This chapter's huge. And speaking of which, um, something, and I was just uh something that I t- kind of talked to you a little about on Twitter that I want to that I'm gonna start doing, and I haven't decided exactly how I'm gonna do it yet, whether I'm gonna do it in like sh- short videos, one big video, but I kind of want to put together a resource because as far as I can see, nobody else in the community has really done this. A like character thread chapter by chapter like read through of like so you know a lot of people do pov reads yeah which is like hey i want to do john okay well that's great because john's like an easy one danny's by far the easiest pov read because danny because she's so separate and she doesn't really appear in a lot of other people's chapters but that's sort of the thing is if you Mm want to look through like to find like hey where is this what characters are this chapter in there's really no resource for that like even if you want to do like a sansa pov because like i just want to do sansa's story arc well sansa only has like i think only like four chapters in a game of thrones or maybe it's like one of the one of the books she only has but she's because she appears in so many other characters even though she has her own pov you know like rob doesn't but val's one that i've always had been like where's val even at so i go to like a search of ice and fire i type in val and i just start like writing down what chapter she's in so i can be like if i want to look up information about her what she's saying so like I'm I'm working on that. Um, I was kind of also thinking maybe we could put it on the website. Have to down. Done, yeah. 
have to dive in, have to figure out. I need to update the website. Well, yeah, just figure out how to do that because this is one, as you mentioned, this is where we first see Val. And we've done a lot of theories about her because there's a lot that to be theorized uh, about. And I think her role is going to be huge going forward. So during our reread here, we'll pay more attention to her. But she's a character. She doesn't have any POVs, but she does appear in a lot of people's chapters like Sam and John and, you know, other people. Davos, I think so. Definitely. So, okay. Um, So it was just some big takeaways, Jimmy, from from this chapter. Uh, Mance Raiders, way more nuanced than he had been told to us all the way previous. Um, He is not just some maniac killer that wants to get together and destroy everything. He is uh, talented, lyrically, obviously, (laughs) Uh, and has a different perspective probably from anybody else in the series and now becomes a another father figure for John in some ways. And uh, yeah, just knowing where it goes, is it, it, it's, it's really sad, but just love the, uh, also just want to give George some credit here. I thought the scene setting at the opening part of this chapter is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the way it's described um, yeah. some of my favorite descriptions so far in the book. I know we're just still early, but um, the world was yeah. gray darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold pale mist rose in the black earth as writers threaded their way through the scatter of stones and stra- scraggly trees down towards the welcoming fires strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. Oof, that's some, so good, good. some good writing there. I like it. So good. Um, so a, a big thing that sort of stands out to me. So I'll, I'll start reading this this part here. So this is where John walks in uh, and he sort of told them like, hey, I killed Corin Halfhand. And then it's like Mance Raiders, Outriders closed in as they emerge. John takes measure of them. You have eight riders, men and women, both clad in fur and boiled leather, right? <laughs> you have the Weeper, Rattleshirt, Harma Dogsheed, Alfin Crow Killer, uh, the Lord of Bones. So the Lord of Bones, uh, the Weeper, the Lord of Bones, the Weeper said when he saw them, he eyed John and his wolf. Who's this then? A crow come over, said Rattleshirt, who preferred to be called Lord of Bones for the clattering armor he wore. He was afraid I'd take his bones as well uh, as half hands. He shook, you know, the sack of trophies of the other wildlings. He slew corn half hand said long spear, Rick him and that wolf of his, uh, the lads of warg are close enough. So, you know, and then the weeper gives John another look like I like, wow. Okay. So, I mean, even here when John presented, you got to kind of view this and you're like, not only did this guy sl- slay corn half and even though you know we know corn let him right he's also got a dire wolf and mm-hmm. he's a warg like to the and and he's a stark whether he's a bastard or not he's got the first men the first blood in it with obviously the wildlings respect yeah so i mean it's pretty obvious immediately here that they've are gonna have some level of you know respect for him like if it, if it were say like you know, John or Jamie Lannister, even if this, even if Jay, let's say like, you know, in theory, it's Jamie that fights Corrin and he just wrecks him because he's Jamie Lannister. I think he's like, he's a super sealed swordsman, but it's totally different with John because he's also a warg and he's got the, the blood of the first men in him. So immediately I think it's much easier for John to get into their camp because they have a lot of similarities to him. And I think it's like stuff that they respect more. Yeah, I mean, he might be closer to a wildling than he is a a member of a royal family in Westeros at this point. And it's interesting because we're seeing him, you know, he's obviously acknowledged as a Stark, but this is like the beginning of him coming into his own, you know, a coming of age, if you will, as we do love in fantasy. Um, 
And, and I think this is kind of part of it. Like, you know, he's being called other things other than just bastard and Stark. He's a warg. He's a member right. of the Night's Watch, a brother. Yeah, this is also a chapter two where John is walking through and he's seeing the tent. And he's like, man, this place goes on forever. Mm-hmm. So you also George also builds up the wildlings in this chapter, which, you know, so far it's like just been a couple people here and there. And it's like, oh, you know, they're gross. You know, it's kind of like you view them as less disorganized, barbaric, yeah, barbaric right here. It's kind of like, oh, no, these they could, they could definitely you begin to see the threat of the wildlings. Mm-hmm. And even John says, you know, they'll outnumber us eight to one, but we're more skilled. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks about how and, but you get the feeling from this perspective that he's trying to convince himself a little bit like like he's like trying to grasp at straws and trying to kind of justify what he's seeing, uh, which is an organized group of people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, some other things here. Uh, Tormund, right, uh, is in here. And again, pay attention to the way Tormund talks. In this one, he just sort of just seems normal. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing really of that sort of as you get with Tormund later, where it seems like he's trying to cover for the fact that he sounded a little bit more mysterious than he, he did, at least if you want to follow those theories, which I do because I do think there's something up with Tormund. Um, but you know, he sounds like a wildling in this chapter, but, uh, just, you know, this is our first time meeting him, but as we progress further, keep an eye on Tormund's dialogue because some of it definitely becomes suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of talks like a pirate, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is, is the easiest, is the easiest way to describe it. Uh, and then as you said, you know, it's like, did you see where they put the bastard that continue, uh, mm. is, is the way this sort of ends. So good. So I'll pull up some of this stuff from, so this is from, let me see here. This is cycle four. They don't, unfortunately, they don't have it listed um, on the Song of Ice and Fire reread. So this is one, you know, newer. I always love to see if I can pull up the ones from, you know, before uh, for the show influence stuff. But uh, I think a pretty good, pretty good one here. So Mance tells John a very interesting story here, right? You know, the wall can stop an army, but not a man alone. I took a loot and a bag of silver, scaled the ice. No, you know, he's explaining this whole deal, right? He's like, I know every body song that's ever been made north or south of the wall. So there you are. Uh, the night you your father feasted, Robert, I sat in the back of his hall with a bench with the other free riders listening to Orlo of Old Town play the high harp and sing the dead kings beneath the sea. I bestook your Lord Father's meat and mead, had a look at the Kingslayer and Imp and made passing note of Lord Eddard's children and the wolf pups, uh, you know. So most interesting here, though, is the mention of a bag of silver. Where else have we heard of it? We found where he'd been sleeping, Rob put in. He had 90 silver stags and a leather uh, bag buried beneath the straw. It's good to know my life's son was not sold cheaply, Catelyn said bitterly. Catelyn 3, A Game of Thrones. Hmm. So maybe, because remember, we don't know who it was who hired the cat's paw. A lot of people think it's Joffrey. Because there's some some alluding what? to the idea. So what's the motivation, though? You know what I mean? Yeah. Create complete disarray. Well, it could create disarray. And honestly, I, I mean, I'll say this. Like, you you, you send a, a nation into civil war, it does tend to get a little easier to, to maybe cross that border and get in, right? Right. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Tyr- again, Tyrion and Jamie sort of think on the cat's paw later and think that it's Joffrey. Yes. 
but that's right. I'm just an in, an interest an interesting thing. So did Mance actually hire the cat's paw? Now he wouldn't have had the dagger. Mance would not have Mance would not have gotten that dagger. Because remember, the cat's paw uses the the dagger, right? That we see in whatever. But it's just the silver, it's the bag of silver. That's the interesting connection. Yeah, I think it's it, it's I, I, I like this. I think that it's better than if Joffrey just did it just to try to like approve of his dad's like I don't right. get the sense that Joffrey's a five year old like trying to get his dad's approval. Like that's not how I read that character. So I kind of like this a bit. Um, some people might say that this isn't enough to destabilize. Um, you know, why not try to like kill Ned? Right. Or Cersei or something. But right. I think that this still makes sense. Like, I don't think it's a terrible thing, especially whenever it's a child, like an innocent child. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's some circumstantial evidence. Yeah. The jury's out. Okay. Well, inter interesting. There's another one here, a big one, but in all honesty, I might say, we might save that for a Raven at some point. Cause it's all about ghosts and ghost actions here. Oh, it, it uh, mirrors John. I mean, it's he approaches right. the the hound. The hounds approach him, and he's kind of the same, but he's not of the same type. And you know, that's John with the wildlings. He's shares a lot of things with them, but he's certainly still not one of them. Right. Yeah. So Ghost just does exact exactly what what he says. So, uh, well, in, interesting. Oh, right here, cycle one discussion. Let me get that pulled up. Sorry. Let me just see if there's anything here. So this was from seven years ago. This is from. 10 years ago. So this is before the, the show in influence things. And uh, there's not really much there, unfortunately. Yeah. I always liked, uh, yeah. Un unfortunately, but, uh, yeah. Interesting. You know, the other thing, there was something else kind of interesting. Um, I will bring the, like the cloaks, the cloaks in this chapter, mm -hmm. uh, says cloaks are very prevalent in this chapter. We see John pretending to turn his cloak. Mance's red and black cloak and your Gret wearing Corrin's cloak. All three are symbolic. John never takes his off. So he remains a man of the Night's Watch. When a man weds a woman, cloaks are exchanged. Ygritte wears the cloak of the Night's Watch, foreshadowing her, you know, relationship, you know, marriage, I guess, to John. Mance's cloak foreshadows his association with Melisandre and John as Mance wears a red and black cloak symbolizing melisandre and john's you know i guess color characteristics the black comes from his old ranger's cloak where the red comes from a shy the girl in mance's story saves mance's life just like melisandre saved mance's life malister says that the cloak is fit for burning but mance keeps it does this mean a deep lasting relationship of melisandre and john see this is the stuff that george <laughs> you've never thought of that have you I'm sure you've never, ever thought. I really that hadn't. Connection. I really hadn't. And, and the thing <laughs> never the made that connection. Thing that bothers me is that it actually does work. Like that makes sense that that doesn't feel super duper far fetched. Right. It's just little symbolism because George no. has there's a ton of color symbolism. Oh, I mean, go look at I mean, there's tons of symbolism all over this series. Go. David Lightbringer has, right. I don't know, thousands of hours of content about the symbolism, mythology and stuff. I mean, it's really mm -hmm. impressive. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Another thing we can deep dive into, you know, at, at, at some point. Yeah. So. All right. Well, with that, we did have a Raven. Let me get this up. And it is actually pretty relevant. Uh, we're still talking Starks and everything. Yeah. Thematically, um, it works. I will get that. I will get that pulled up here. Give me one second. It's it's, it's about the Starks. And are they poor? <laughs> um, which I know is kind of like, what? But uh, here we go. 
So this is from Joel the Dreamer. He says, here's a video suggestion. In the books, the Starks were not as wealthy as the Lannisters, but they were a lot richer in, than in the show. First of all, Winterfell was much larger, not the dampy keep in the show. The towers are taller, and it's a much more private town for the Starks and their servants. Three acres alone is set aside for the godswood, and the castle is built from great granite, you know, which is a valuable material. As at the feast of Kings Robert, they're all dressed magnificently, including Benjen, who wears the fanciest blacks in the whole story, rich velvet, high leather boots, a silver buckle on his white belt, and his heavy silver chain. When they go to King's Landing, Ned orders new uniforms, silver chain mail, yes, silver, not iron, and long cloaks of heavy gray wool decorated with white satin, satin borders. Their cloaks are pinned with you know, hands of beaten silver. Likewise, Ned always wore his good council silk as hand of the king. And when he was uh, stead on the Iron Throne, he wore, you know, a white doublet embossed with gray silk direwolf. Back in Winterfell, Bran is attacked by the wildlings because of his wolf's head brooch of silver and polished jet. This is just go, you know, to riding, you know, this is just to go riding. This isn't even a formal event. While Theon was living with the Starks, he wore a lot of gold, and when he took Winterfell, he ordered a crown made for himself of the self-styled Prince of Winterfell, you know, encrusted with gold nuggets and black diamonds, likely from Winterfell's treasury. At the Harvest Feast in Winterfell, Bran is, quote, dressed as befits a prince and drinks from a silver goblet worked in the shape of Direwolf's head. Catelyn describes her son Rob's royal robes as quite magnificent, and he wears a bronze crown. Not exactly poverty like we see in the show. Why do you think they went a different route in the show? So, great Raven, and great observation. Excellent, excellent um, observation. And and I think the lens with um, which we look at these things is very important in the television show. And I think it is much more obvious in House of the Dragon, by the way, that we're not supposed to just like... <sighs> fawn over the royalty right like with like we see common folk get murdered uh and slain and on for petty vengeance and and petty moves for power by by the royalty so i think it's a little bit more on display there that like the everyday man uh the blue collar people of of king's landing are not at all involved in any of the royal families however in game of thrones the stark family is immediately portrayed as sympathetic and down to earth and a little bit more in tune with the common folk. They are very respected by their bannermen and their lead. Um, you know, they'll get Eddard Stark as their liege lord. And even though they are lord and they are a prominent house and probably have a ton of money, uh, it's never really rubbed in our faces. There are still things that we could take as clues. Like, for instance, the fact that they even have crypts is insane. Um, the, all the stonework that would have to go into that and the formation and the construction is something that nobody outside of a royal family could ever have afforded in Westeros at any point in history. Um, but I do think that in the show, we are meant to sympathize with the Starks just a little bit more as you know, down to earth folk that are just getting by, that are actually using their power in the North for good. They're respected. Um, and I think it's just dumbed down for that. A very gray, like low level uh, family in the books. It's much more obvious <laughs> that there's a separation between peasants and in, uh, in, in Royals. So yeah, the money of the Starks is evident all over this series for sure. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of that one. I think it does sort of, show because remember also like the first the first of the first step we see is obviously in winterfell so on one hand i think it's also to kind of set the tone that this is a medieval mm -hmm. you know 
fantasy setting. Two, you know, um, they're they probably wanted to keep the one set they built right you know pretty similar and <laughs> the budget obviously wouldn't be as high in season yeah. one of course you know it still doesn't matter that you go to king's landing and it's royal and everything so i do agree that one is to kind of show like disparity between the two to make mm -hmm. the starks again feel a little more blue collar to yeah. give them that sort of like hard they're not as pretty they got darker hair the North. yeah Right. We just don't also spend a lot of time in Winterfell, to be honest. Hmm. Right. And then a lot of the other times we see the Starks, I think our sort of mindset is, you know, other than Sansa, like Arya's in the dirt, you know, she's out on the road. John is at the at the wall. He's out on the road. Yeah. You know, Bran, same thing. So It'll a lot of them, other than Sansa, like a lot of the times we see them, nobody's really in a position to be wearing like yes. nice outfits and everything at least as you progress further down the series so and yeah that's and, i'm sorry but yeah. j just to point out and if, if if you've never done it if you're just a show watcher and you're kind of just like tuning into the podcast and going through the reread with us i i would implore you to go and look up official and fan art for winterfell winterfell oh, awesome. the show is a disservice to how cool winterfell actually is like when we talk about the battle of winterfell the battle at winterfell uh you know, some people were like, why would they use Winterfell? It's not even that great of a fort. Like, it is absurdly big in the books. And it would be a great place to, you know, defend against um, an invasion of any sort. Uh, now, obviously, Theon and Ramsay, everyone kind of messed all that up. But regardless, if, if you're not aware of how different Winterfell is in the books, definitely go look up some uh, lore-inspired fan art because it is majestic. It is massive. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And I, I, I totally agree. I think a lot of it was just budget for that for that season one. Um, and we I mean, obviously we are there season two and, and, and whatnot. But I think really more so there's those first few episodes where you're there and then everyone leaves. So you don't yes. really need to also sort of really ramp everything up because you're not spending a lot of time there. And then again, like the regality of House Lannister as opposed to House Stark. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Um. I know that we're doing audio here, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, if you could add that. Yeah. So this is a book accurate portrayal of riding up to Winterfell, which for those of you who are audio only, uh, you know, we can see the heart tree over there on the right, which looks really cool. But in the show, it's like really there's a central keep, there's walls, and that's that's about it. Like there's some farm animals. If you actually look at the book accurate one, there are pillars and different buildings. I mean, it is almost like a little mini city block. Uh, maybe not even a block. I mean, this is like a neighborhood yeah, that right. looks like a built up like urban place. I shouldn't say urban because it's not like modern, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, this is a place where a lot of people live. Like a lot of people are, are in Winterfell. Uh, it's not just like five people and a couple farmhands, you know? So right. it, it's just really incredible the difference, but it's absolutely budget related for sure. Yeah. And, and portrayal just to give them that different. Yeah. Give them that, di that different perspective. So, mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, with that, guys, I think that's that is our show for this week. Unless there's anything we wanted to add to Jimmy, no, I don't think so. You know, uh, guys, send us your ravens. You know, as we're going along with this, and if we're saying stuff that uh, even if you disagree with, we'd love to have a raven about that, and maybe we can um, elaborate and ha have a good discussion about maybe some of the things we got wrong. But on on top of that, you know, we're going through these things. So if you start thinking of things and theories or you know, even just uh, some points that you want to make, send them in as a raven. We love talking about it and love hearing you guys' thoughts because so many people have read this series. There's so much to get into that a new perspective is always fresh and welcomed. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, guys. Well, with that, we want to thank you for playing the Game of Thrones. Our next episode, we will be discussing A Storm of Swords and Daenerys 1. If you like our podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like us, write a review, leave a comment, or send us a raven at btkcast at gmail.com or bendthekneepodcast.com. We will see you next time. And remember that winter is coming. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.